during my PhD work, I was in Southwest China, and we had this idea that it was sort of developing in our group at that time, that there's actually a flat surface sort of way up at the top of the southeast margin of the Tibetan Plateau. And there's a bunch of rivers that have cut down into it, but I'd never seen this in the field. So we were driving through this very mountainous landscape, up and down into valleys, and then we were driving up this valley, and then we started driving up the side of the valley, the switchback roads, you know, your life is in danger around every corner, and there's landslides everywhere. And then all of a sudden, we just like came up over the top of something, and it was a flat landscape, like not perfectly flat, you know, a pool table or anything, but it was rolling hills, and there was like little pine trees, the vegetation changed completely. Yeah. And it was flat and it was just so counter to what you'd expect. Normally when you drive uphill, you just expect to get steeper and steeper and steeper. And it didn't, it just flattened off. And that was the surface that we had been talking about. And I finally really got it. Earthy Pursuits. An academic, an adventurer, a storyteller, and earth science enthusiast. Today's guest on View to the U, Professor Lindsay Shanebaum, has had wild times out in the field. On today's show, Lindsay talks about her work that uses the landscape to read tectonics, with tectonics being the process that affect the properties and the structure of the Earth's crust and its evolution over time. We also cover some of the faraway locales she has traveled to in order to conduct her fieldwork, venturing most commonly to seismically active parts of the world where earthquakes can occur, as well as some of the more exciting and memorable trips that have occurred over the course of her academic career. With this second season of the podcast focused on women in academia, Lindsay also discusses the associated challenges and frustrations for women in the work environment, but she sees hope on the horizon with the open dialogue and debates that have been sparked over the past year or so. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T, Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Lindsay Shanebaum is an associate professor and an associate chair in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. She earned her PhD at the prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2004, before going on to do a postdoctoral position at the Universität Potsdam in Germany, and then on faculty in the School of Earth Science at Ohio State University. She has been a faculty member at the U of T since 2009. Her research explores tectonic geomorphology, which is the study of the surface of the Earth and the forces that are involved in shaping it both the constructive agents that build features like mountains and continents, but also the destructive elements like erosion caused by rivers, landslides, and glaciers. I know that your research is an exploration of tectonic geomorphology and all that that encompasses in relation to the surface of the Earth. So I was wondering if you could provide a bit more detail about what tectonic geomorphology is, and if, as I mentioned, using lay terms, and perhaps provide a couple of examples of current projects that you are currently working on. So tectonic geomorphology is what I do. And the geomorphology part is basically the landscape. So it's things like rivers or river terraces or glaciers or sometimes landslides, or sometimes it's sort of the architecture of a whole mountain range, but thinking about it from the landscape perspective. And then tectonics. So really what I do is tectonics and I'm trying to use the landscape to read the tectonics. There's a lot of different ways to understand tectonics and this is the angle that I take on it. So one sort of branch of what I do, you could sometimes call it neotectonics. That's a bit jargony. So another 
another way to think about it is just looking at the record of past earthquakes, for example. So I have a student right now who's in Argentina. He's actually due back tomorrow. And he was doing some field work along a fault in Argentina. And this fault cuts through a couple of river terraces. So these are sort of flat spots that the river has carved out and then it abandoned. And then the fault comes through and it cuts them and it offsets them. And if we can measure how much it's been offset, and then if we can date the age of that surface, we can figure out how fast the fault is moving or when the last earthquake is. So we use these features of the landscape that are cut by faults, try to date them and figure out when the last earthquake was or how active the fault is. And that helps us make predictions for seismic hazards. And are some regions then, because I know you do research in certain areas, are they just more prone to earthquakes because of these faults? Yeah, so there are seismically active parts of the world and seismically inactive parts of the world. And I tend to work in the places that are active. And that's where mountains are growing. On your website, one of the topics that I was reading about was called the roots of plateaus Mm -hmm. and also how glaciers and faults interact in plateau regions. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this topic. Yeah, so one branch of my research is this neotectonics, or looking at measuring faults, but the other branch is what we call landscape evolution. So I'm looking at how the tectonics are sort of lifting up parts of the landscape, and then how the rivers and glaciers are responding and eroding it back down. So it's sort of a push from below by tectonics and a constructive forces. So the tectonics are trying to build up the mountain range, and at the same time, water, either ice or flowing water at the surface, is trying to tear those mountains back down. And so we're looking at that competition and sort of who wins out under what circumstances. I'm trying to read that in the landscape. So yeah, you mentioned the roots of mountains. So tectonic plates have two parts. They have the crust and then they have this thing called the mantle lithosphere. And we think that when you create a mountain, you're thickening both parts. And we think that that lower part, the mantle lithosphere, can get so thick that it actually drops off like a blob like exactly like a lava lamp, the exact same sort of physics behind it. And when it does that, it has been acting like an anchor. So when it drops off, the whole land above it pops up. And so, for example, I work in northwest Argentina in the Puna Plateau, and we think that it was probably relatively low until 36 to 40 million years ago. And then there may have been a big detachment event and the whole thing sort of popped up. And now it's sitting at about four kilometers elevation, which is pretty high. There's a lot of different ways to examine whether that happened. But one of the ways is you can look at what happened at the surface. You can see if it changed elevation. Was it at one kilometer before and now it's at four kilometers? I've done some work on that. And when that happens, you expect a bunch of faults called normal faults. So these are faults that accommodate extension. You expect them to happen in a particular pattern. And so we're looking for those features. So we're trying to use the landscape to figure out what happened 30 kilometers deep in the crust, which is in the tectonic plate, which is pretty interesting. And then the other thing you mentioned was glaciers and how they interact with growing mountain ranges and active faults. And in some ways, that's an offshoot of my research. It's something I've done with undergrads over the last couple of years. We're trying to sort of build up a database Now, glaciers are a bit neglected. Most people sort of look at how landscape interacts with tectonics through rivers as the media. Glaciers don't occur as often, and so they get a bit more neglected. But they're quite special because they are really tied to climate in a way that rivers aren't. The river's sort of there, it's not, but the glacier will only be above a certain altitude. And if the climate changes, they'll grow. But we're really interested in that sort of altitudinal relationship. So glaciers tend to hang out at certain altitudes, and so they affect the mountain range, particularly at that altitude. And it's interesting to try to read that in the landscape. 
So then with your work though, because you did mention climate and this was sort of a follow-up question, is your work really impacted a lot by things that you see changing due Mm -hmm. to climate change? Climate is always changing. It has changed dramatically over the history of the earth. And obviously what's going on now, you know, with recent climate change is alarming. That's not something I really work on though. I work on climate in a deeper time context. So over the last several million years. So if we understand climate dynamics in the past, it does help us understand climate dynamics in the future, but I don't actually work on that stuff. Okay. I was thinking it must impact what you're doing, but I understand what you're saying, but because you're dealing with things that are sort of... Over longer timescales. Although it does, like one of the things I have my undergrads do is we map out glaciers and, you know, glaciers, well, in most parts of the world, glaciers are receding right now, not everywhere. And so that does actually affect the data that we're collecting right now. I understand, and you mentioned a couple of them already, but that your field locations are all over the world. And so I was wondering if you could mention a couple of the far-flung places that you've been and also some of the field equipment that you use to conduct your research. Yeah, that is one of the amazing and wonderful things about being an earth scientist is that the field is our laboratory. Most of us spend a lot of time in the field and some pretty exotic locations. Most of my work I do in Argentina these days, the northwest part of Argentina. It's a wonderful place to do field work. Very civilized lifestyle, you know, with the <laughs> barbecue and, and wine for dinner and a siesta in the afternoon. And it's also, it's very beautiful and the geology is fantastic. I spent a lot of time, my PhD thesis and then my postdoc working in China, in Southwest China, along the Red River, which is close to the Vietnamese border. And then out West, close to like the Pakistani border and the Afghan border. And that was interesting. We had some adventures. Once in Southwest China, we were canoeing <laughs> because there's very little outcrop. Like that's what we want in geology is you want to find the rocks, right? And in that part of the world, there's a lot of mud and a lot of vegetation. Uh, not a lot of rocks, and there were rocks along the river. So we bought a canoe, collapsible canoe. We shipped it over there, and we were trying to do field work from our canoe, and we capsized right above some rapids, and all three of us got swept through. And we were separated, and there was drama, wow. but we were all fine. <laughs> <laughs> and in Western China, it's interesting because it's a fairly there's a lot of civil unrest in the region, and and I was there you know, shortly after some big protests and people were killed and there was a really strong military presence and sort of operating around that was difficult but interesting. I did a little bit of work in Africa once. I lived in Europe for a year. I did my postdoc in Germany uh, or Turkey. I did a bit of work there as well. It's quite wonderful. With the equipment though, how do you end up transporting or do you have sort of locations that are positioned there that you don't have to bring everything over? No, yeah, good question. We don't use much equipment in my world. So one thing is we need a vehicle. We always just rent that there. In Argentina, it has to be a four-wheel drive truck or we can't get anywhere. And then we need our sort of personal hiking and camping equipment. I have a supply of that in my lab that my students can use and I have my own stuff and we bring that with us. And then we collect field data. We used to use paper maps and some of us, like me, (laughs) still do, but many of my students are now transitioning to doing it digitally. So they have an iPad and a stylus and an integrated GPS and they're taking photos and field notes and actually measuring the orientation of rocks right with their field pad. We have to keep it charged because we're often camping. So we'll bring solar panels and stuff with us. And then we also do GPS work sometimes. We all have GPSs in our phone. They tell you where you are on the surface of the earth, but you can use it to make a topographic map of the surface of the earth. So we basically have a very powerful GPS and we carry it around with us. We actually have little backpacks and these poles and there's a little antenna on the top of it. And you're recording the location of the top of the antenna. And we walk around the landscape and you just walk over it, you know, sometimes just in a transect, sometimes all over. And we can use it to create a map. That's a bigger (laughs) piece of equipment to carry with us, but we do take it with us. And then I guess the last thing is drones. I haven't used them much, 
but we're starting to get into that because it's much more efficient to fly a drone over an area for 20 minutes and take some photographs and then model the landscape. It's more efficient and more accurate than walking over with a GPS. So, How are you able to date the... Yeah. So how do we date the rocks? We sort of the field equipment question or side of that is we are collecting samples and then we have to sh ship them home. My student in Argentina just shipped home six buckets of samples and two of them arrived today. <laughs> we unpacked them and look at them. Yeah, so there's two kinds of dating that we do. One is something that people are more familiar with, that's radiometric dating. So C14 is an example of that. And most people have heard of that. We don't actually use C14 because it only goes back around 50 or 60,000 years before you sort of run out of signal. We use similar techniques and they're basically, you've got some material that traps radioactive isotope a radioactive element like uranium, and then over time it decays to something that's stable, and you measure the ratio between the parent, the radioactive material, and the daughter product, the stable material. And based on that ratio, you can figure out how old the material is. So sometimes we'll find volcanic ashes, for example, in the rocks that we're working with, and you can date volcanic ashes that way. The other thing we do, though, is called cosmogenic uh, nuclide dating. So there's cosmic rays that come from space or the sun, from solar flares, and they are like little bullets and they hit atoms on Earth and they split them into smaller pieces. And most of those pieces just exist on Earth normally, but a few of them don't. They only form in these spallogenic reactions. They only form when the cosmic ray hits them. And it's a little bit like sunburn. So these rays get used up. So you get a lot of these special nuclides that are forming right at the surface and not very much as you go farther down. There's actually a few particles that will go all the way through the Earth, but very, very few. Most of them get sort of used up. And so it's sort of like they're causing a sunburn on the surface of the earth. And we can measure that accumulation, like basically how red the skin is, tells you how long you've been exposed to the sun. Yeah. So how much nuclide you have tells you how old your surface is. And this is really useful for geomorphology because we're dating things like river terraces or glacial moraines, things that we're interested in. They formed right at the surface of the earth. And so that technique works great for them. So for that, we collect a bunch of samples, we ship them home, and then we have to dissolve them and do other fancy stuff to concentrate the nuclides that we're interested in. So beryllium-10, for example, or neon-21. And then we ship it off to an accelerator mass spectrometer. We don't have one here. There's one in Ottawa. And we run it and we figure out the concentrations and we do the math and we get an age. That is so cool. And are there any obstacles to even shipping these samples home? Yes. So one thing you don't want to do is label your products as sand because that's soil and soil and sand are much more difficult. So you can ship them in, but you have to jump through more hoops and they're reasonable. I mean, they're trying to keep us safe, right? But most of our samples are from deep in the soil profile. There's no actual soil in them. So we label them as rocks. Okay. <laughs> that's harsh. <laughs> you dig them out? Yeah, we dig them out. Yeah. So then yeah. this is also part of the equipment that you have to shovels. bring. Shovels? Shovels. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. What we do is we hire uh, people locally because to collect the cosmogenic samples, it's sunburn. So you actually have to see, it's like you have to see a profile of the skin, right? You have to see how red it is at the surface, but also how that yeah. drops off as you go down. We dig pits that are two meters deep and that's hard. I'm going to say, it looks <laughs> like do. a workout. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like digging a grave. Like they're, they're actually the dimensions of a grave. So we usually will hire local people to, to help us out. Yeah. yeah, and they often will provide their own shovels. Oh, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah, but shipping is really expensive. I mean, we just we spent $2,000 on this last shipment, I just getting the so. samples back here. Yeah, because that would be a big undertaking, getting everything back here to be able yeah. to analyze it. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's also interesting how much of my time isn't spent on science, but it's spent on like wrapping samples 
samples in, you know, duct tape and, you know, yeah. weeding yeah. <laughs> to deal with the paperwork, you know, shipping stuff. Good thing with rocks, you don't have to wrap too much because... Yeah, like, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like China or like, I don't know, something... Yeah, it's not fragile. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, actually, rocks, they're sharp, right? And so they'll actually sort of push through the cardboard boxes. So that's part of it. You're actually like taking the edges off. And also a lot of times we're dealing with sand or with loose cobbles and we don't want it to burst apart. Right. And are there any findings or results that you've come across over the course of your work that you found particularly surprising? Yeah, I was surprised once in the field. And it's funny, I don't think I should have been, but it's still, it's the difference between seeing something, reading about something or seeing it, you know, on a map and then seeing it in person. During my PhD work, I was in Southwest China and we had this idea that it was sort of developing in our group at that time, that there's actually a flat surface sort of way up at the top of the Southeast margin of the Tibetan plateau. And there's a bunch of rivers that it have cut down into it, but I'd never seen this in the field. So we were driving through this very mountainous landscape up and down into valleys. And then we were driving up this valley and then we started driving up the side of the valley, the switchback roads, you know, your life is in danger around every corner and there's landslides everywhere. And then all of a sudden we just like came up over the top of something and it was a flat landscape, like not perfectly flat, you know, a pool table or anything, but it was rolling hills and there was like little pine trees, the vegetation changed completely and it was flat and it was just so countered what you'd expect. Normally when you drive uphill, you just expect to get steeper and steeper and steeper and it didn't, it just flattened off and that was the surface that we had been talking about, and I finally really got it. What a nice memory, though, yeah, too. Yeah, that was. And can I ask how you got into this particular field of study in the first place? Yeah, when I was in grade eight, I took an earth science class, or actually it was a general science class, but someone with an earth science background who was teaching it, and she was incredibly inspirational, and she's a family friend, so we're still in touch. So it was partly that, just her enthusiasm rubs off, right? And it was also, I remember looking at a map of the ocean floor and being amazed that there was so much topography down there. It's not flat. There's big underwater mountain ranges. And, you know, I think I just got the first sense of like the power of geology and shaping the world. You know, I was inspired by the subject, but I also like being outdoors and hiking and camping. And that's, you know, geology is one of the fields where you can do that. And do you do any kind of diving? No. Jogan Helfar, who's a colleague of mine in um, oh, right. Earth yeah. Sciences Group within CPS, uh, he does quite a bit of diving. So there certainly are aspects of Earth Science where that's important, but I'm a bit claustrophobic, so oh, yeah. <laughs> no diving for me. And so what do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? I think that if you go by the numbers, the paper that I've had most cited was actually from my PhD work. And it was about what I was describing about driving up rivers and then seeing the flat surfaces at the top. I was part of the group that came up with that idea. You know, I was one of the first people to figure out a way to quantify that, to measure it. So we were looking at river profiles and I could actually look at the river profile that belonged to that flat part and reproject it and sort of recreate the landscape before the river started to cut into it. Um, and that's been cited quite a bit because that technique is applicable in other places. I think the sort of biggest body of work though would be in Argentina. I've been working there for a long time, since 2004, and I have some colleagues we've published together. So I think our sort of body of work has really filled out the history of both on the plateau and then around the plateau, the history of what's happened there and how climate and tectonics have interacted and what's happened. Have there been these drips and uplift of the plateau? You don't have to pick a favorite, but is Argentina, is it safe to say it's your favorite, favorite place, place to go? To well, yeah, that's interesting. In some ways, Argentina is my favorite. It's certainly the most comfortable. You know, when I step off the plane in Buenos Aires, I feel very much at home and I have very good friends that I work with there. 
So I certainly enjoy going there, but in some ways it's become routine. I mean, I've been there a number of times and I, sometimes I'll tell like a new friend, oh yeah, I'm off to Argentina next week. And they're like, oh, that's so amazing. I've never been there. And I have to be like, oh yeah, I should be more enthusiastic. <laughs> but so I do, I do like going to the exotic locations. You know, I, I did just three short field seasons in Turkey and I loved every minute. And China is the most, certainly the most challenging and exotic place I've been. And, and I love that too. And I've heard so many good things about Turkey though, like just an interesting country. Yeah. And... and the fantastic food too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really nice. Yeah. Do you end up going to Argentina like a couple times a year? Uh, or it depends? Once or twice. Yeah. I'd say, I think I tried to count. I think I've been there like 14 times. Um, over since 2004 so yeah. it's not I guess it's average once a year I mean I had some mat leaves in there so those yeah, those slowed yeah. me down yeah. um, and these days it's mostly with students so I often just go for a short visit so I was there last fall not last November with a student and I was only there for I think I slept in the field for three nights yeah. so we had I think I had five nights in Argentina yeah. two nights on the plane and yeah. you know that was it and that can be also included into the impact of your work because I'm thinking you do, I know you do a lot of work with students and I think that that's also a huge contribution. Yeah, I've worked with a bunch of graduate students and I have my first PhD student just got his first faculty position and just took his first PhD student and that, it's quite cool actually. And yeah, the working with graduate students is great and then I also teach undergraduates and that I think if you want to look at actual impact on the largest number of people, that's probably where it is. I taught that a large enrollment class for a bunch of years. And yeah. No, it's just, yeah, I find it interesting because when I ask that question, I do get a range of responses, but sometimes it is, you know, very much the contribution to the uh-huh. field. But, you know, I think a couple of people have brought up how many students they've yeah. worked with over their time. And it's yeah. like, that's huge in terms of knowledge mobilization and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Coming up, women in academia. Lindsay talks about the challenges women face in virtually any career but also the hope on the horizon with the dialogue that has started and new initiatives at the university. And so I think I mentioned to you that this season of View to the U is about women in academia. And so I do like to ask, you know, and there's been a lot of discussion lately about promoting and supporting women in, in all different careers, but I'm just wondering if you've come across any sort of challenges in the course of your academic career, or if you have words of encouragement or if there's a mentor that you want to sort of give props to, or like any of those things that are tied in with your work. I, I saw this question, you know, in the list that you sent to me, and it's a difficult question to answer because in some ways it's hard to be, let's start by saying that I think pretty much every woman everywhere faces challenges. We have particular challenges in earth science or in STEM fields or in academia, but, you know, this is a, a problem that, I don't think I know any woman that hasn't dealt with some actually pretty serious problems. I personally, it's interesting, I, I think I've only recognized some of it in retrospect. The times are, are changing now, right? The, the conversation around sexual harassment, sexual violence is different now. I think literally at the time I didn't actually recognize that some of it was happening, but I probably dealt with three fairly impactful episodes of harassment in my career in academia. I have, and I've heard, like I said, heard about it from almost every woman I've talked to. I have two friends who were harassed by sort of powerful men in their field, their advisors, and kept quiet about it for 20 years. And it finally has come out, and these guys are kind of facing the consequences finally. So, and that's the big stuff. There's also a lot of sort of day-to-day... I feel like I deal with the imposter syndrome a lot, and many of my female colleagues do. Some of my male colleagues, too, we... There's a lot of self-doubt for all of us, but I think particularly women. 
And there's, you know, there's pay gap, there's unconscious bias, there's the way student opinion surveys are, are known to be biased against women. And, you know, I'm lucky to be a, a white woman. I think we have a real problem with diversity in STEM, and particularly in our science, we're terrible with people of color, uh, women of color. So there are a lot of ways in which this is a difficult place to be. And also, I, I have two kids, and, you know, it's certainly a challenge to be a, a working mom. Again, that's not, you know, unique to academia, but that said, I would want to be encouraging for women, and I don't want to be discouraging. I do think things are changing, and I think they're changing rapidly, and I think U of T now has a sexual violence policy. I do think university campuses were already changing in a positive direction, but I think that society as well is starting to recognize how deep some of this sort of bias and harassment runs, and I think that's a good thing. Um, numbers are better. You know, there are now, I just saw a report recently that in earth sciences that we're equal at the PhD level. See, I find that very reassuring because I know I've heard the stat sort of circulated that people start out sort of as equal. There's the yeah. same amount, sometimes higher for certain fields. But as you get higher up in PhD postdoc, the number of women, it yeah, goes exactly. down. It's the, the leaky pipeline issue. And if you look at when we achieved equality at different levels and how long it would take for those people to get through, we haven't hit those milestones, right? So we're, we're losing people. You know, for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, and well, this is just, I wonder about the reasons because sometimes I hear people say, well, sometimes they feel they have to make a choice between career and family because if you're an academic, you do have to spend a lot of time doing what you do. But yeah. I don't know if it's totally down to that, though. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. But I also think it sometimes has to do with incidents of major harassment. There's women who don't want to continue in this career because their advisor, for example, hit on them and they said no, and there will be repercussions for the rest of their career for that. Or the sort of smaller, you know, the daily, you're not good enough message that people get. And that's hard to quantify. Yeah. But it's family as well. But I would say that... I think raising kids is hard for any, well, any parent, but often the burden is on the mothers, not always, but often. And academia has the advantage of, well, first of all, you're in a relatively progressive workplace. There's usually pretty good policies. I think U of T's policies are great. And U of T is also open. I know that you guys uh, in this, the VP research office are working on like lactation rooms and support for conferences and stuff like that. And that's incredibly helpful. And I think many women don't get that in their workplace. So that's great. And the other thing for me that was wonderful was flexibility. You know, if my kids were sick, I could go and get them and do the work later. So I wouldn't discourage it. You know, if you're passionate about the science, then go for it. You know, the barriers are, it's getting easier all the time. You can be part of the change and uh, yeah, go for it. Good to end on a positive note, but I thank you so much yeah, for coming no in today, Lindsay. I really appreciate it. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's show. I would like to thank my guest, Lindsay Shane Baum, for coming in to speak about her work and her projects in the Department of Chemical and Physical Sciences at UTM. For more information on her work, I highly recommend touring her wonderful website, lindsayshanebaum.com, where you will find detailed information about her research as well as some videos that were shot while she was doing some of her field work. Thank you to the Office of the Vice Principal Research for their support, and for everyone who has expressed their interest in this podcast. Thank you to CARA, that's the Canadian Association for Research Administrators, for allowing me to present on the podcast at the annual conference in May. Please feel free to get in touch with me. My contact information is on our SoundCloud page. And if you have feedback, or if there is someone from UTM that you'd like to see featured on View to View, please let me know. Lastly, and as always, thank you to Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you.